Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT News of the Week. I'm your host, Rich Travellino. I'm an editor at Gestalt IT. Joining me from across this great nation of ours is the one, the only, the networking nerd himself, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me back, Rich. I know I've been gone for the last couple of weeks and uh, it looked like you had some great co-hosts to fill in, but I'm back, I'm energized, and more importantly, I don't have coronavirus. <laughs> yeah, for being on the road, a little terrifying. Yeah, and big thanks to Josh Fidel for stepping in and uh, being a co-host last week. Uh, if you missed that episode, you can check it out if you are so inclined. Uh, I would recommend it. Um, so we will get going, though, with this show, with a little segment we like to call News or Not. This is where we have maybe too many stories to cover in extensive discussion detail, but definitely wanted to touch on them. And we're going to get that started in news or not. So first up uh, at RSA security or RSA conference, not RSA security conference, security researchers from Asset published details about a vulnerability in Wi-Fi chips made by Broadcom and Cypress Semiconductor called Crook. This affects things uh, like iPhones, iPads, Macs, Amazon Echoes, Kindles, Android devices, routers, uh, a whole swath of things that have uh, uh, basically Wi-Fi uh, uh, hardware in them can potentially be affected. The exploit occurs when wireless devices disassociate from an access point and can affect either the end user or the router. So this vulnerability can hit when you're coming or going, basically. When disassociation occurs from something like switching an access point or signal interference, uh, any unsent data or excuse me, devices put unsent data frames into a transmit buffer and then send them over the air using an encryption key that's all zeros rather than the one that was negotiated during uh, when the access point connected. Uh, this includes several kilobytes and researchers who said hacker could essentially trigger in multiple intentional disassociations by just uh, it sending out signal interference to increase chances of capturing useful data, which probably if you're logged into something, you would think maybe some login information might be in that buffer there. Apple and Amazon have both released vulnerabilities, or both released patches to the vulnerability to affected devices. Uh, but Tom, news or not about this level of exploit? So this is always one of those um, tricky ones. It's news because they found a vulnerability. It's not really news because by now almost everybody has patched it. So it, it has two specific requirements. You have to be using Broadcom chipsets so that you know automatically knocks out about half of the manufacturers out there because they're using a Theros and Qualcomm. And two, it has to be something that isn't already patched. Um, I know Apple, Amazon, Mist um, have already already issued patches. I believe Cisco is going to be releasing a patch pretty soon. Um, this is one of those out of band, get things patched up. And honestly, I mean, you could increase your security by doing something like, I don't know, running a VPN over the top of everything. <laughs> so the likelihood of them being able to get that, I mean, and let's be fair, if you're a security researcher, you probably are double bagging your VPN anyway. So I don't really think this is going to be news past like spring break because everybody will be patched by that point the one thing i'm i would be concerned about i guess is for you know places that have to maintain some sort of wi-fi connectivity but don't necessarily have full scale it shops so small businesses that kind of thing where they could have one of these affected routers be hosting some uh you know some complimentary wi-fi maybe that's even secure you know password encrypted and that kind of stuff but uh has i mean you know unless unless you're if you're if you're running cisco routers theoretically you're updating in a relatively efficient manner you know mom and pop shops that are running an asus router just to you know provide some wi-fi for their office or something like that especially in a sedentary location where you know if someone finds that there's an exploit out there you can just sit there all day and basically disconnect your your laptop from that point and you know get those buffers uh theoretically could be bad but that's a 
you know, a couple kilobytes that like that, that that doesn't scale as a vulnerability. Not only that, but the irony is, is that the the smaller shops are actually more insulated from this because Broadcom chips are expensive. That's they only true. go in enterprise gear. <laughs> so like the, the mom and pop shops that are going to Best Buy to buy this stuff are probably buying things that have a Theros chips in there anyway. I looked on Ubiquity's forums and Ubiquity is completely insulated from this because they stopped using Broadcom chipsets like four or five years ago. That's uh, I, I didn't realize that. that's too funny. Next up here, uh, the information reports that Facebook is changing its plans for the Libra cryptocurrency, no longer planning on making it just a token, instead focusing on processing government backed currency and eventually integrating it into a revised Libra token. Wah, wah, wah. The Calibra wallet will not support con- or will now support conventional currency as well as crypto and will possibly only roll out as Facebook integrates support for a nation's currency as opposed to just coming out everywhere all at once. The Libra Association has faced nothing but government scrutiny and dwindling membership since being announced last summer. Tom, news or not? Not really news because cryptocurrency is not going to be a thing. Sorry, Internet. (laughs) Um, I mean, okay, here's the thing. What was the purpose of cryptocurrency? We want to create some kind of a digital transaction blockchain implementation that governments aren't going to be involved in. Guess who has all the money? Governments. Guess who wants to control all the money, no matter how it exists? Governments. Guess who's going to heavily regulate anybody trying to get around their regulation of currency? Governments. So when Facebook decided that they were going to pull out all the stops and try to go around the government control, guess what the government did? Got in Facebook's (laughs) business. This is not going to stop. And it does go against my prediction uh, for 2020 that something called a Libra token would be released. Doesn't look like that's going to be the case. Essentially, this looks like it's going to be warmed over Facebook payments that they've been doing now for probably close to a decade. Uh, So I am sad that my prediction has gone wrong. Uh, next up here, another security story. The latest Android security bulletin showed a rootkit or showed a rootkit exploit for MediaTek chips had been patched in March. Oh, that sounds good. Pretty ordinary. Until you consider the information that the bug had been on XDA developer forums since at least April 2019 with evidence that it was being actively exploited. This exploit grants roots at root access to devices without having to bypass the bootloader and was originally discovered by a hobbyist trying to root an Amazon Fire tablet. Some devices where OEMs have modified the Linux kernel were not affected. Root bug that affects devices least likely to be patched, like MediaTek usually goes in lower end devices. News are not here, Tom. Full disclaimer, I use Apple devices, iPhone, iPad, Mac, AirPods. Um, Ha, ha, ha. Uh, Android (laughs) has a vulnerability. Uh, And not just a vulnerability that was being exploited by hackers, a vulnerability that's been around for almost a year that hasn't been patched and will likely not be patched because nobody rolls out updates for devices that old. Ha, ha, ha. Um, That being said, if you have one of these Android devices, you know what? Who cares if you don't know what chip's inside of it? Just go see if you have an update today. You're going to need it. Because Always you really don't want people updates. getting root on your device. Yeah. Now, here's the funny thing. People have been trying to get root updates on things for a long time because that allows them to do stuff like install VPN modules and get into the kernel of devices they don't have access to already. So getting root on a device isn't always a bad thing. Getting root on a device you don't own through methods that your owner doesn't know about, that's bad. Yeah. Yeah. Any kind of, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Root is neutral. It just gives you permission. Uh, it's when someone else has it and you don't know that uh, it becomes a major issue. And finally here on News or Nah, 
let's uh, let's think. IBM, D-Wave, Google. These might be names that come to mind when you think about quantum computers or the emerging field of quantum computing. Well, you may need to add Honeywell to that list. The thermostat company says that in three months, its new quantum computer will be generally available to customers. They'll house it and people can get access to it remotely, offering a quantum volume of at least 64, which is double IBM's top end machine. This is kind of a new metric as opposed to measuring qubits that takes into account kind of uh, broader considerations when it comes to interference and read times and stuff like that to give a, a more simplified metric of performance. Uh, this uses a trapped ion quantum charge coupled device architecture, which uses electrical fields to trap ions, which are then manipulated and encoded using laser pulses. The, co- the company expects to see a tenfold increase in quantum volume every year for the next five years based on this design. News or not here, Tom? Not news. It would have been news if this would have been uh, something they'd cobbled together out of all their thermostats <laughs> and we would have had a hive mind. Um Here's why here's why I don't think this is news ultimately. Making a quantum computer is is useless now. It's building an engine that for a car that doesn't exist right now. Mm-hmm. Um it's all theoretical. Congratulations. You guys have a slightly more precise quantum computer. Call me in 5 years when it can crack RSA encryption. The the interesting thing is that you know, I mean, Honeywell doesn't have an inconsiderable team working on this. By all accounts, there's like 100 scientists that have been working on this, but a lot of it does come down to things that we don't necessarily typically associate with computer science where it's like you know they have expertise in material science they have expertise in heating and cooling like we and like a joke that they're a thermostat company but that actually comes in major handy when it uh, when it comes to quantum computing where there are huge thermal limitations that you have to you have to keep things super cooled and and crazy stuff like that so weirdly uh i, I don't even want to say gives honeywell an edge but they have a unique uh, perspective on this uh, as their company is formulated. And obviously, they're a much, they're a giant conglomerate that does 50 billion things. Again, most people know them, I would say, the brand from uh, from Thermostat. So uh, interesting there. First up in our discussion, though, um, uh, as I mentioned kind of in our, before we actually started rolling on the show, um, talking about, you know, the ongoing COVID-19 outbreak and for a while, we've been uh, not not covering it, but only covering the enterprise aspects to it. And there have been a lot of uh, uh, tech and IT events now that have been affected uh, by this. Obviously, um, MWC was canceled as a result of it. Now, just this past week, we've had Facebook's F8 conference. Google I.O. announced that it's uh, going uh, fully remote. GDC was uh, postponed. NVIDIA's GPU conference is going all remote. So essentially, the physical presence of all these conferences has been canceled. We're now seeing uh, South by Southwest having uh, companies like Twitter, Intel, TikTok, and Facebook pulling out. And Airbnb is, in fact, saying they're delaying their IPO as a result of this ongoing outbreak. So there's some very physical uh, manifestations and and real-world impacts of um, not just obviously on people's health, which is supremely important, but on these events as well. And in fact, uh, we recently uh, announced that our uh, Tech Field Day event, our upcoming Tech Field Day event next week, you know, Tech Field Day, we pride it as being an in-person event that we live stream out. Uh, we are uh, going to be taking the event remote because out of concern for the seriousness uh, of the COVID-19 outbreak uh, and out of consideration for uh, the delegates and the presenting companies. Uh, it'll still be broadcast uh, completely normal. So if you're, you're used to watching the live stream, it's going to be in the exact same places that you would expect to find it at techfieldday.com and stuff like that. But, you know, this is even hitting close to home. Uh, for us as well. So we wanted to make sure we we let uh, our viewers know about that. But now we're also seeing, you know, companies kind of responding to this. And in a really interesting way, um, Google and Microsoft have both announced that they're going to make enterprise teleconferencing and collaboration tools available for free for a limited time or opening up 
uh, more uh, expensive enterprise features to basically all their customers. Google's rolling out Hangouts Meet to all G Suite and education customers. This lets you have up to 250 participants and 100,000 viewers on a conference. And Microsoft is opening up a free six-month trial globally for the premier tier of Microsoft Teams and has lifted the limit on membership for the free tier of Microsoft Teams as well, just to kind of encourage, hey, if you're working remotely, you know, you can use Teams and, and don't have to worry about kind of getting squeezed on costs there. This does maybe a little cynically come right after Zoom and Cisco's WebEx have lifted um, all of their limitations on their free tier when it comes to uh, time limits and that kind of stuff. So maybe a little catching up here. So, Tom, my question to you is a lot of lead up there, a lot of me talking. Good corporate citizenship on the part of these companies or not wanting to be left behind on all this free onboarding? So from the perspective of companies that are pulling out and canceling conferences and all that stuff, that's good corporate citizenship. Mm-hmm. Um, we are tr- trying to protect our workers from, you know, essentially getting infected by something we don't really know how to deal with. Yay for you guys. Yes, it's hard for everybody. And especially, you know, here at the Field Day family, we want to make sure that our delegates and our presenters are completely safe. So totally understand that. Microsoft and Google are playing catch up to Cisco and Zoom. That is part and parcel. They would not have made this free if somebody else wasn't about to kick their butts. And, you know, who's noticeably missing is Slack. Um, Not that a paid Slack plan gets you a whole lot more than a regular Slack plan from the perspective of most people. Mm -hmm. And I would honestly expect to see Slacking out something in the next couple of days. Um, The interesting thing here is how they're going to parlay this free um, expansion of rights into paying customers. Um, I know that Cisco is already looking at doing some kind of special deals for people for the next 90 days. So I would expect to see um, these free tiers in place for at least the next 60 days. Um, there's a lot of chatter in the background about, you know, is this the death of the in-person conference? Um, is this the death of this prohibition on remote workers? Are we going to finally prove that you can do any job anywhere with anyone? I don't think we're going to get that far. Um, I think that by the summertime, we are going to see some more conferences happen. Um, I think we're going to see people kind of, you know, poking their heads out like the groundhog. Um, and there will be stuff going on. Um, I also believe that there are certain things that really only work well when you can get in front of people. Um, I can speak for field day because it's what I do and what I love. Um, and as we've said over the years, virtual field day is not the most optimal way to do that. It's, you know, it's very much people in front of people talking about stuff. So, you know, does Cisco Live work virtually? Depends on what you go to Cisco Live for. If you go for content, yeah, I can see that working virtually. Um, I don't necessarily know, though, that, you know, this time next year, we're all going to be jumping in a Cisco Spark room to have (laughs) virtual tech field, or I'm sorry, misspoke, having virtual Cisco Live, because I just don't think that that's going to work. Um, in the long run, I think what we will see is maybe some people scale back. We were already seeing a lot of conferences that were starting to go to a regional model because it's a whole lot easier to get people to fly to Dallas for, I don't know, 4,000 people than it is to get 30,000 people to fly to Vegas. Plus, I mean, let's be perfectly frank about this. Um, if this means that nobody else goes to Moscone ever again, (laughs) call me team coronavirus. (laughs) The that's this is definitely not going to be the title of the show. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think there are two types of shows. I mean, when we're looking at 
events. I feel like those where the, the primary purpose of it is to announce things like Google I.O. I, I, like there's a whole developer part of that. But like the announcement part of that, that can be done remotely. There's like there's no pain in the, of like showing off the latest Pixel phone or whatever they're going to do at I.O. or the latest advancements in A.I. or whatever failed audio product they're going to come out with next. The what where my heart goes. Well, my heart always goes out like as a, as someone who works for a company that does events and realizes the hard work and the sweat that goes into that. It does break my heart for like a show like GDC, where I mean, that was just coming up next week and they canceled that. A lot of hard work went into that. And the importance of these kind of trade shows where, you know, for a lot of smaller developers or companies like Cisco Live or something like that, where there are partnerships being formed, like the reason companies go there, developers go there or, or, you know individuals go there is to build those partnerships uh that just is much harder to do and get access to the, all those people in all one place so there is a i do feel like there is definitely a value um in that uh for for a lot of these events um and yeah i mean things like slack and and microsoft teams and webex and that kind of stuff they allow you to work remotely which is great um i do think also though that there is a, a supreme amount of value of uh for a, across a lot of industries for you know, uh, working together and that kind of stuff. So it's great that we can work like that. It's great that we don't just don't have to, you know, go into our hovels and, uh, you know, wait till the weather heats up to poke our heads out. But, um, you know, making this is the silver lining on a, on a very scary looking cloud. Uh, next up here uh, in our discussion here in uh, in hardware news, which is always close to my heart, the chip startup Ampere announced that they have begun sampling their new ARM based Ultra CPU. Ultra, not Ultra, or not Alta. It's very confusing. Uh, it's designed for servers with an impressive 80 core count. So that's eight zero cores. Previously, the highest density core we've seen, I think, is the 64 core Epic uh, CPUs from AMD that were released. Uh, their second revision was just released uh, last year. This comes in at 210 watt TDP package, meaning uh, it has significant watt per core advantage than something like AMD's Epic platform and certainly compared to Intel. Impressively, Ultra also offers class-leading I.O. with 128 PCIe 4.0 lanes in a one-socket config and 192 with two sockets, which is... I think better than what AMD currently offers with Epic. This company is being led by former Intel president Renee James, and we're now seeing ARM support across Kubernetes, Docker, VMware, and KBM. So, you know, at least on the most fundamental level, there is some feasibility to this. We'll get into the discussion of maybe why not. But while ARM is not going to take over the data center anytime soon, I don't think anyone's predicting that. Could this find use cases, Tom, in things like edge computing, analytics, and cloud providers where you either need uh, you need relatively low power consumption. Uh, you need high parallelization or both. Yeah, I could see this really taking off. I mean, that's part of the issue is when you look in a data center, okay, let's just let's let's throw some more sticks at this dead horse about <laughs> VMware's vCPU thing. I mean, this this processor would need three CPU licenses in order to run because it breaks through two 32 core barriers. Years. But realistically speaking, I mean, you're going to be running this with K8 somewhere. You you don't care about like, you know, overhead. You just need horsepower. And if your application's optimized to run an ARM, awesome. That's great. <laughs> uh, 210 uh, watt TDP, though. I mean, I think I could fry eggs on top of that, baby. <laughs> um, I mean, compared this, though, I mean, uh, so Epic and uh, Intel are in like the 250 watt range when you get to their high density stuff. So, I mean, yes, it's not like vastly superior but not inconsiderable either but that's the but the point there is is that when you're looking at the 250 watt 
range for an Epic processor. I'm not putting an Epic processor in an edge computing device. That's true. That's Whereas, true. you know, this is something, you know, okay, we saved 40 watts on TDP. <laughs> so that means that the closet's only going to be like, what, 120 degrees instead of 135 or something. Um, these have a place. I don't know what that place is yet. Um, the problem there also is that if I have a computer that has 32 cores that I don't know what to do with. Having a CPU with 80 cores means that I have two and a half times the amount of stuff I don't know what to do with. <laughs> so I, I don't ultimately know what the solution for that problem is. Um, just keep building, I guess, for a while. Well, and I could see companies like Packet, for example, you know, they already offer some ARM instances with their service, you know, with their cloud service and stuff like that. So theoretically there there is some I, I do think in the cloud market there is some interest there even if the maybe the use cases or the market isn't there quite yet but the issue on that end is that we're already seeing amazon releasing their own arm based processors uh, uh there's a number of there's rumors that i believe that uh, microsoft and google are also working on their i know google for sure that they're working on their own arm processor or at least that's been reported um, so it may be that, yes, Ampere is coming out with these uh, really interesting uh, high density uh, server based or server designed ARM processors. But if they're hoping to get hyperscaler pickup and buy huge bulks of these and figure, l let them figure out what to do with them, it seems like they're kind of eager to develop their own anyway. So when you're not operating at that scale, I don't know what the use case is. However, Renee James has a history of uh, knowing the chips. So um we will see going down the road here. Uh, just 80 cores, though, uh, still impressive regardless of the architecture. Next up here, uh, something on uh, some legal news here. I guess not le legislative news is what I will call it. Uh, the U.S. Senate unanimously passed the Secure and Trusted Telecommunications Network Act, which bans the FCC from giving funds to telcos to purchase equipment from companies deemed threats to the U.S. The act requires the FCC establish a $1 billion fund to help smaller ISPs replace equipment and for the FCC to establish a list of companies deemed threats. Uh, the Rural Wireless Association estimated back in 2015 that about 25% of its members use equipment from Huawei or ZTE, which we can all pretty much assume are going to be named on this threat list. Uh, the U.S. House has already passed this bill, so the Senate passing it, I believe it's already been signed by the president by this point as well. If not, it will be so in the near future. Big pull of money, enough for these rural ISPs, Tom, or will this be a rougher transition than we think? Yeah, it'll be a rougher transition than you think because what ultimately happens is companies like Huawei and ZTE get into rural telcos, not because they are the superior technology. It's because they are the good enough technology at the price point that rural ISPs uh, work with. And having been in a situation where I worked with rural schools and rural telcos, they are not flush with cash. So the government may be kicking in millions upon millions of dollars. And even if we go up to something like the E-rate program where you're buying at like a 90% discount rate, mm. there are still a lot of places that can't come up with that 10%, especially if they have to rip and replace all of their gear. If the U.S. government's serious, they're going to have to go all the way. They're going to have to fund complete rip and replace, $0 cost to the um, rural ISP. Now, that gets into a huge problem of now you've got a situation where that company can now sue the U.S. government for an anti-competitive type of situation. And I know that Huawei and ZTE are still on the bad list because, you know, ooh, what could possibly happen if a foreign <laughs> government gets gear into our organization? I don't know. People ask that same thing about American equipment with the NSA. 
and look where we're at now. Uh, the other thing we have to worry about, and this is a news story that I saw just a couple of weeks ago, um, Nokia is in dire straits because they're, the future of Nokia is 5G, but 5G's future is still two to three years out and they need money. And so I would not be shocked to see the US government start kicking in some massive amounts of money to Ericsson and Nokia just to keep them floated because uh, another part of Huawei's business pitch is, hey, we're 5G ready because we've been building 5G for the last couple of years. So if you want to be 5G ready in the US, just use our stuff. Yeah, that's something I haven't even thought of is not just the cost of the replacement, but the the physical cost of actually swapping out the equipment in terms of, you know, that's time invested that you have to pay someone for. And then on top of that, I'm assuming there I mean, there's going to be a, certainly be a process cost in terms of, hey, we got to either install new software or we got to learn new systems, new training and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, uh, there is and one billion dollars, a lot of money to me. I don't know how many ISPs this affects in terms of a bulk number, how many customers that affects, and you know a lot of the knock-on effects. So I hope this just wasn't a figure that was pulled out of thin air to say, hey, we threw money at this. Um, I hope there was uh, some research. It's the government, so who knows? Um, but uh, yeah, um, sounds like it could, uh, could be pretty rough for some ISPs out there. Not an envious position for sure. And finally here, uh, we had some earnings news uh, kind of back-to-back from HPE and Dell Technologies that I thought uh, would put some – I'd ask you for some context here, Tom. Uh, HPE posted in Q1 uh, that they saw their server sales decrease 16% to just over $3 billion in revenue, due partly to supply chain disruption from uh, COVID-19, but also due to an overall weakened demand. Um, and uh, as part of a shift um, – and it also kind of comes as HPE is itself shifting to more of a services model as opposed to just hardware and that kind of stuff. Dell Technologies, meanwhile, also posted decreasing infrastructure revenue with overall for the unit being down 11% to $8.8 billion in revenue. Uh, breaking that down, looking into the individual units, storage revenue decreased 3%, so relatively holding steady, decreasing a little bit, whereas networking and server revenue fell 18%. Neither company is expecting revenue growth in in their infrastructure segments at all in 2019, again, partly due to uh, supply chain disruption uh, because of the COVID-19 outbreak. Is, however, this like kind of a wider signal for the commodity server market, you know, maybe going more of the way of the mainframe, Tom, or is this just kind of going to be the level of new normal that we're going to hit at some point? I think it's going to go down from here, to be honest with you. When you look at the fact that these two companies are losing money and the cloud companies are gaining money, Mm -hmm. that should tell you where the money is flowing. I mean, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, they're all up. Nobody cares about Oracle Cloud still. (laughs) And drink the many, the sorry, I had to get one in. Uh, The infrastructure vendors are down. So, I mean, realistically speaking, when you think about it, this is this is the new normal for people, which is infrastructure on premises is going to be very specialized. It's going to be for specific kind of like critical infrastructure or highly regulated industries. And the highly regulated industries are probably going to have their rules rewritten to start taking advantage of cloud relatively soon. If I can ensure that stuff, you know, my S3 buckets aren't wide open to the world, then I'm going to be able to start moving that stuff somewhere more secure than my data center. Because how long is it going to be before Amazon just says, hey, we just opened up a super secure data center, I don't know, in in Cheyenne Mountain, and we completely controlled physical colo access, and it's more secure than your data center. You might as well move to us because we'll pass your audits better than you will. Um, That's going to be hard for companies like HPE and Dell Technologies and a lot of other folks 
who are counting on the fact that people still need to replace servers. I mean, storage costs only went down a little bit because people are consuming storage on a regular basis. But when it comes time to buy new hardware, if I'm gonna have to rip and replace servers anyway, I might as well rip and replace them in the cloud where I can do more efficient cost modeling and things like that. Now, I could be wrong and in three years, everybody could run screaming back into the data center because, oh my God, cloud is expensive. But I don't see that happening as much as you might think. Yeah, and and you know, to uh, to be fair, like I said, HP has already kind of announced, "Hey, we're all in on services. We're going to you know grow services and stuff. Like we're not banking on infrastructure spend itself being the backbone of our company." Dell Technologies is in, you know incredibly diversified across a number of products. So I don't think it's doom and gloom for those companies. But yeah, as, as you're talking about for for you know direct infrastructure, you know, kind of replace upgrading and replacing your server costs, they it does seem like the you know things we're seeing from organizations like SNEA and stuff like that, where we're seeing the the vast majority of a lot of traditional infrastructure spend going to hyperscalers, and so just the economies of scale alone seemingly just make uh, you know the the cloud seem more and more appealing. AWS now doing outposts and stuff like that, where they're increasingly, you know, realizing, hey, we need to move these cloud data centers closer and closer to where you're actually doing business and that kind of stuff. I, I can only imagine that's going to increase over time and they're going to become more sophisticated with that kind of stuff down the road. Um, so I, I do wonder if it's going to be, I, I recently saw a chart of uh, two charts about vinyl sales, kind of comparing this to this. And one of them showed that over the last like 15 years, vinyl sales have just skyrocketed. You look at it and it looks like a hockey stick growth chart. And it's like, whoa, like the, the vinyl, you know, is totally resurgent. It's amazing. And then they back out to a 40-year chart. And the increase in the last 15 years is like barely perceptible compared to how far it fell. I don't think it's going to be quite that drastic or that uh, <laughs> uh, quite as dramatic, you know, looking at it uh, from there. But um, I do think we are, uh, you know, maybe we're, we're going to be operating at this is this is obviously going to be a much smaller part for both of these companies. Um, let's say 10 years, you know, um, I don't think it's going to fall apart overnight, but I don't think we're going to see this combated too much as a narrative. Yeah. All right. Well, that just about brings us to the end of the Gestalt IT Rundown. Tom, thank you so much uh, for being on here this week. Really appreciate it. Tell the fine folks where they can find more of your great stuff. Well, since I'm basically going to quarantine myself, which <laughs> is my way of saying I'm going to be introverted, um, you can check out my Twitter feed for snarky goodness. You can check out my blog, networkingnerd.net, but make sure you tune into gestaltit.com as well. Um, I'm going to have a lot of great articles coming up. I just got back from RSA and I secured all the things. So I'm going to be spending some time talking about those things. And hey, if you are watching us on YouTube, remember, uh, if you want to catch this, uh, catch this on your commute, Check out our podcast feed for the Gestalt IT Rundown. Just search for Gestalt IT Rundown in your podcatcher of choice. We're right there. And if you're listening to the podcast feed, remember, we're live on YouTube every Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Join us. Uh, see me and Tom's bright, shining faces. Uh, it's glorious and wonderful, and we appreciate everybody that watches us live as well. So until next Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time, that just about brings us uh, to the end. Tom, thanks once again uh, for myself, for Tom, for all of us here at the Gestalt IT family. Here's wishing you and yours to have a super sparkly day. <laughs>